Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be speaking to thought leaders and practitioners in and around product management, hoping to use our combined experience to inspire you to be a better product manager, product leader, or just make better products. If that sounds like your cup of tea, let's keep refilling the teapot. You can pop over to onenightinproduct.com, sign up to the mailing list, or subscribe on your favourite podcast app and guarantee you never miss another episode again. On tonight's episode, we talk about survival metrics. And although product management does sometimes feel like being marooned on a desert island, luckily we've got more than just Wilson to help us out. We talk about the tricky path from product manager to product leader, how maintaining organisational alignment is critical for the success of your product, and how agreeing on and using the aforementioned survival metrics enables you to make sure that everyone's on the same page when you decide to stay the course, double down, or cut your losses. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Adam Thomas. Adam's a product manager and product leader who once cost his company almost a million dollars in SEC fines and didn't get fired. I can't even begin to imagine how that sprint retro went. Adam's passionate about helping teams reduce friction, craft product strategies and drive alignment between all the circles in that tricky product manager Venn diagram. He's also a fan of good liquor and once read 100 books in a year, presumably not combining both of those at the same time. He's recently started championing product survival metrics to help determine if initiatives are worth investing more in, pivoting, or stopping completely. Hi, Adam. How are you tonight? I'm doing wonderful, Jason. How are you? Um, I'm doing okay. So first things first, you are lead product manager at Smart Recruiters based out in New York, although I know you're based in New York. I don't know if they are or if you're remote. Uh, I can imagine what Smart Recruiters might do, but just for the record, in your words, what problem does that company solve? We solve the hiring problem. That sounds right. likely, yes. Yes. <laughs> so we help recruiters, hiring managers, interviewers make better choices. And when they're going through the hiring process, hopefully increasing what we call a net hiring score. We do a good job. Right. So, so very metrics driven then, is that fair to say? Yes. We want to help you make the right decision. And is that something that is very broad across the entire sector? Like I can go to smart recruiters if I'm hiring marketers or product people or tech people or anything, or is it focused on certain silos or focused on certain industries? If you can hire it, you can use smart recruiters. <laughs> there, there's the, uh, the new advertising strap line right there. And you're lead product manager there. So are you like the most senior product manager in the team or do you have a bunch of lead product managers there working on different stuff? Uh, we have a bunch of leads working on a few different things. And I report to Francis Ebay, who is our head of product. You're also listed as the managing director of Approaching One, which I understand is a bit of a side gig, but it's a proper company that you're doing proper company stuff with. So how much time does that take up in your day-to-day life? You know, you're a lead product manager. You've got presumably lots of stuff to do in a day as well. Yeah, yeah. It's more nights and weekends. <laughs> so Approaching One, Certainly, nights and weekends. Approaching One is really, it's a company that goes out and helps coach product managers to do some of the things that we're going to talk about here, right? We also help product leaders kind of transition from individual contributor piece to that product leadership piece, which both you and I know is a huge shift. Oh, yeah. Uh, (laughs) You know, just kind of looking at metrics to looking at a portfolio and understanding the different parts of a company and all of the other fun that comes with it. Right. So I know in your spare time, you're obviously 
doing a lot of work around producing content, but is this also something where you go and, for example, consult with companies and try and work with them on defining coaching plans and mentorship and stuff like that? Or is it very much focused on the content? I kind of do a little bit of both, right? So I'll get a contract with a company and work with them to figure out. For example, uh, I did a rather large consulting company. I helped them figure out their training modules for their onboarding PMs. Another consulting firm, I, I help their designers and product folks understand strategy, right? So like, there'll be some engagements around that. And then, of course, there's always the content. So obviously, you've touched there on a couple of types of company that you've worked with. But like, is it just anyone who comes to you? Or do you tend to focus either on certain industries or on certain stages of companies like, you know, pre-seed, series A, series B, all the way up to big corporates? Like, are there any that you don't work with? I haven't turned anyone away yet. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll see where it goes. <laughs> So uh, you haven't done your safe certification yet or anything like that? No, 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 no safe little E certification. <laughs> that little E, it's just there kicking you in the face, isn't it? <laughs> now, you've been in and around product management for a few years now, working in a bunch of different companies and obviously moving, as we've just discussed, from individual contributor, as far as that goes in product management, all the way through to product leadership strategy roles and obviously the consulting now on the side. As far as I can tell, you've kind of taken the full proper hero's journey from tech and programming into product and product leadership. So like the cliched Silicon Valley dream of going from tech and engineering all the way up through into product. So what was it that got you personally into product in the first place and made you so passionate about it? I wasn't a, a happy engineer. I think, that's, <laughs> I think that's a story that a lot of us have, right? I was a, a mainframe programmer and I was just sitting in and, and just not really loving just coding all day. And so I had a mentor who was just kind of noticed this and he would, he just goes, Hey, Adam, would you like to manage this thing? I have this printing product. We got a couple users. I mean, it's something else that you can do if you're interested. Why don't you go down there and let me introduce you to the users? Right. And then off it kind of went from there. Right. I found this real joy in really trying to figure out the whys behind what was happening and then getting a holistic view of the product itself and trying to come up with solutions to solve problems. And so once that started, it never stopped. Yeah, I think that's something that really resonates with me as well. Like, again, starting myself from more of a development background and in fact, I also started working, I don't think necessarily on mainframes, but certainly on big VAX machines with green screen interfaces and stuff like that. And I would classify myself as always a kind of fine developer, but never actually amazing enough to be the guy that builds the next thing myself. But the kind of adjacent opportunities that things like product management presented to kind of use your communication skills, use your quote unquote business skills, and obviously use your technical skills as well, I, th I found was a really interesting avenue for me and something that really helped me grow my career because I could have kept on as an average programmer for a long time or you can try and break out of your shell so definitely understand where that comes from but you also haven't just been in product and you haven't just had approaching one you've had a couple of other startups in your time certainly that you've listed on LinkedIn the gamer studio arcade school both of which seem to have closed now either that or you just left them behind and don't work for them anymore and they're still thriving. Are they still thriving or 
did you get them massively successful and sell them or <laughs> were they glorious failures? One, I, I would say I, I didn't get massively successful, but I did sell it, right? Which is the Gamer Studio. Ended up running that for about five years, building up a really a content studio where we focused on giving gaming news. And we also took some early steps into places like YouTube and podcasting. Like we're very, very early, like 2006, 2007, just because we, we were curious, right? And so I got a chance to build that up and, and sell it to someone, the brand to someone about 10 years ago. Arcade school failure. I think it was just a <laughs> tad too early, right? And so what we were trying to do there was we were trying to help folks understand how to hire entry-level talent, right? There's a big fissure between what colleges do, what recruiters are looking for, and what companies think are successful. And so what we were really trying to do is trying to sit in the middle of that and help train people in a way that's going to help them stick around entry-level companies for a very long time. Because when companies bring in associate or junior-level talent, one of the reasons why they really shy away from it is because it's extremely expensive. Yeah. When it works, it's great, right? You have somebody for a very long time, but when it doesn't, you end up paying, you know, somewhere up to two hundred, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars for just wasted money. Yeah. And we were hoping to avoid that or help companies avoid that. But you didn't? No. From the sounds of it. Uh, no, that was No, we didn't. Still happening. <laughs> but was that something that taught you? I mean, I guess both experiences would have taught you a lesson about something, but probably much, probably much more satisfying to think about the successful one because that's something that you can feel good about. But did you learn anything that then helped you with your general product career, your product thinking from the, the one that didn't work? Yeah, I think the biggest lesson I got from arcade school was really team development, org development, right? How to inspire folks around you to make a change that matters while keeping them engaged with this vision that they have, right? Because with early teams, right, and especially, you know, when you're two, three, four people, it's it's really easy to get into the idea of what, you know, what you could be, right? And get stuck in that phase. And for quite some time, we ended up stuck in there. Like, and I think a lot of founders might identify with this, like, we're in constant stealth, <laughs> we're really trying to perfect the product where, you know, all those things that you tell yourself, but they end up not being true at all. Right. It's just, it's really fear. You know, if we should just get two or three corporate partners, right. If I can just get this deal with it, but like none of this matters. Right. And so now between that and really the job I came coming off of that startup, which was a consulting firm called philosophy, I really understood how to ship. Right. Like I, I I got a really good education around how to ship, especially uh, greenfield projects. So really thankful for that time because, you know, sometimes when you're roaming around in the forest, it's nice to, <laughs> you know, you, you, have to, you have to go through and roam around in the forest for a while to understand how seductive it can be. Yeah. And I think there's always that cliche around like, you learn so much from failure. Like, yeah, we've all had failures in our careers, right? Big or small. And as long as you can take something out of those, then, I mean, I don't, I don't know who it was that specifically said the quote, but this idea about there's no such thing as failure, just things that didn't work yet or something along those lines. Now, that sounds like the sort of thing that a thought leader would put onto Twitter, but at the same time, probably a grain of truth in there. But you've touched on it a couple of times already in this interview, 
just then and a bit earlier around this kind of journey into leadership and obviously with leadership comes things like team building and strategy and we'll talk about some of that in a minute but with regards to being a leader in the first place like you obviously worked with your startups and that gave you you know you have to be a leader if you're founding a startup right that's part of the package but how did you help to make sure that you landed as effectively as possible as you moved through your product career and became a leader for other people because a lot of people just get kind of Peter Principal promoted into a position because they're like a really good individual contributor or something like that. They don't get any coaching. They don't get any training or support, really. They're just expected to do it. Was it like that for you, or did you have quite a good path into leadership and feel that you were really supported in? Right. So, you know, that lovely Peter Principal, right, getting uh, promoted <laughs> into <laughs> into your idiocy, right? I think for me... I got lucky with a couple of things. One was doing a few startups and like getting through a lot of my leadership problems early. Yeah. Right. I'm running the gamer studio as an early 20s idiot. Right. So (laughs) I had an opportunity to really work through some of those really early leadership mistakes. The other thing is I've been really good at soliciting mentors, I guess. Every place that I've gone in my career, that was useful to me at that caveat. Like I, I generally have <laughs> left with, you know, with, with somebody like a, an executive sponsor, VP of something, somebody that um, I've been able to talk to even to this day, right. About things that are going on in my life. And, and that has been extremely important to me because it's helped me be able to just call someone when I'm going through an issue. Yeah. Combine that with a couple of massive failures and then, you know, <laughs> Boil for 30 seconds and you're done. Yeah, boom, ding, ready. (laughs) I think the first time I got a chance to really kind of find myself as a leader was when I was at Informed because I got to be the number one product person there, right? And I got to grow a team and really understand what this whole product leadership thing was about, not within the confines of someone else, but this was the first time that I had a chance to like, hey, you're the guy, go. Yeah, you've got no one to ask anymore. Yeah, you're you're responsible. (laughs) Like, yeah, ask for advice, sure, but like you're the one that's got to carry the can, right? Yes. But aside from leadership and team leadership, which is obviously a really important part of leadership, you're also very keen and passionate on the concept of driving alignment between different areas of the business and making sure everyone's on the same page. Now, that's obviously a really typical perennial challenge for product managers and product leaders, right? It's basically part of the job description to be kind of stuck between everyone Again, in the middle of that Venn diagram, trying to make sure that everyone's on the same page and they're normally not. Obviously, having developed that passion for it, I have to ask, like, have you had some really bad experiences in the past where that lack of alignment has really affected you and made you really want to then go and focus on that in the future? Or like, like anything that you would specifically call out? Or is that just a general theme that you've seen over your career? Oh, it's a general theme in my life. <laughs> No, I've really seen the the issues that can come from this by the various places that I've worked, right? There are a few things that like make me cringe when I hear them. Um, <laughs> sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, right? So bad is like, oh my God, if we had known, bah, right? And, and good <laughs> is like, I wish you told us we would have, meh, right? And then these things kind of crop around product teams because or product teams especially because right i think product people 
should be the arbiters of the decision science inside of a product development team, right? We don't have code to ship. We don't have prototypes to, to build. I mean, we can do those things, but... Yeah, we get told off then. Yeah, like this is not a good use of your time. And they should, right? It's not really a good use of your time unless it's really helping move the change or, or help people understand what decisions they are making in order to make better ones in the future. And so I think alignment's a big key. Uh, it's a big part of that. And a lot of the most frustrating times in my career have been when either A, I didn't do the work to get alignment. And so all these well-laid plans, right, get torn apart and destroyed. Or uh, <laughs> B, somebody else didn't do alignment and I didn't have the experience to sniff that out. So I ended up wasting time. Yeah. That second part, well, I mean, both parts, obviously, but that second part, there's certainly points in my career where I've assumed things, assumed things were the way that I thought they would be. But obviously, there's that whole cliche about what you can make out of the word assume. And <laughs> it's like, you have to check. Like you say, it's the product manager's job to do that. And you can't assume. And I think that was one of the, my biggest learnings as I came through was like, other people probably aren't doing what you think they are. because They've either got a different angle on it, maybe even different rewards that they're aiming for, or potentially that they just don't know something that you know, and you think that they know it and they don't. So it's just the whole kind of vicious cycle, right? So I know where you're coming from there, but like, what are some of the ways that you've successfully managed to bridge those gaps as you've developed those muscles over your career and started to concentrate on it more, there have been some techniques that you've used to drive that alignment and really make sure that it's there. So I, I love the, the point about really trusting, but verifying, right? right really the yeah. point is trust, but verify, right? And so one of the things that I, I love to do with teams is just ask, right? What do you think our goal is? <laughs> what do you think the incentives are, right? I was, I was talking to a PM today during my office hours. And he was talking about a situation where the CEO that he's working for, right, like has this point of view. And I was like, okay, what's the point of view, right? Could you tell me the point of view? He starts talking about the customer. He starts, starts talking about himself. And I go, what, what does the CEO think? <laughs> uh, <laughs> like you have to understand that, right, before you, you move forward because that's the person that signs the checks, right? And even if they're wrong, especially a CEO, but really anyone, right? It's, it's human behavior to, yeah. to think, hey, what I think is right. And unless you have something that's going to you know, dislodge that, it's going to stay that. The thing is, though, you can't dislodge a story you don't know exists, right? Yeah. So starting by understanding people's point of view and then asking them, so what do you think? And then asking your group or your team or kind of however this uh, formation is created, just thinking, asking them if the goals are aligned. If you ask them, okay, could you tell me in two sentences what our goal is for the next quarter? If those answers aren't close enough, now you're starting to sniff out where the dysfunction is coming. Like there's some dysfunction here. And so now you can start piecing it together, right? Because to your point earlier, people aren't necessarily trying to do a bad job. <laughs> for the most part, no. For the most part, right? right. But like people's incentives are different. They have exactly. different pieces of information than you do. Yeah. And so if you don't, at least have a way, like I described, to, to sniff that out. You can be three ships in the night, four ships in the night, a thousand ships in the night, hopefully going in the same direction, but who knows? <laughs> but you also talked about needing to have a story 
around a product, something that you can hang on to to inspire change, end quote. So how do you recommend going about crafting such a story? And I guess more importantly, getting that buy-in and alignment around that story so that everyone's on the same page. It's important, well, first to identify what stories exist, right? And so this looks like the question I just previously gave to the audience here. It might also look like your culture and value statements, right? Those aren't just things on the wall, although sometimes they are, right? <laughs> but it can give you a place to start, right? To start digging into you know, what this company stands for. And at least it gives you some sort of moral edge, right? Our value is X, right? We're trying to go to X value, right? It's something you can continually point at because these things exist as some sort of agreed upon social contract. I think another thing that is extremely important is to understand the history, right? You have to understand the history of what the environment you're in is because through that history, you start to get some of the other stories that may exist, right? Either they're the kind of meta stories of the company or minor stories for people that are important for your decision to, to happen, right? Because we have to be honest, power dynamics exist. <laughs> we can pretend that, <laughs> that you know, the associate, associate product manager is just as important as the CEO. It's not true, right? It's just not. You have to understand that history. You know, once you kind of get that awareness and that history, I think asking some questions that are based upon that context to start constructing what those stories are. Questions like, you know, let's say we have this idea, this X widget. How much are we willing to sacrifice to get this widget out the door? Or, you know, how much are we willing to invest in to get this widget out the door? Right. Some questions that, you know, based around some sort of tentpole that people know about can get the plus this history plus taking in things like the social contract of the company starts to give you a really a story that you can start to build on and identify you know across company sounds good i'm sold so survival metrics you posted a blog post about this a little while back and it's a way to identify when it's time to double down pivot or abandon a feature now again that's not something that any product manager worth their salt hasn't come across a few times in their career, making sure that people don't hang on to projects or worry about sunk costs or all of the things that normally happen in companies with biased people having their own opinions, which is fair enough. Again, it's part of the product manager's job. But how do survival metrics help get over that? And how do you go about defining them? This goes back to you know this operationalizing point, right? It's very easy to talk about best practices, right? <laughs> you can't hear my fingers, the, the quotes. I'll, I'll take a screenshot. <laughs> so like there are these best practices, right, that come from these conferences. I call it conferences, right? Because conferences tend to be, they're, they're clean rooms, they're labs. You don't get the actual thing. <laughs> you get the perfected, beautiful story that somebody's going to tell you. They don't tell you they spent six months screaming into their pillow trying to figure this out. <laughs> <laughs> At least the ones that are actually real, because there are a few that aren't, right? Yeah. So when it comes to the conferences that you hear, it starts with understanding that, yeah, this is a clean lab version of what it is, right? The true test of any framework is how does it operationalize? How do you make it real? And so survival metrics is really trying to help folks who 
come into a team, right? Or, you know, they're in that team. And so they hear this thing at a conference where they go, you know, good teams can pivot whenever they, <laughs> I saw this thing and, you know, I, I went to sleep and had a dream that we were going to reach a J curve if I just did the Spotify squad model, you know, like this, <laughs> you know, you know, let's be honest, nonsense, right? But they come back and, okay, they, they know that they were supposed to pivot. They heard about it from your favorite conference speaker. And then they go, all right, pivot. And both you and I know, like, even if you make the right choice there, people aren't going to move. They're, they're too invested, right? Yeah, exactly. There, there's this sunk cost fallacy, right? Like, we're, we've done this for three weeks, a quarter, two quarters. We need to see it through. Yeah. And so survival metrics really is a way to help that PM come into that situation and go, okay, I know we need to change. Here's some ways that I'm going to create a story around that change, right? I'm going to make sure that the change is fast, which I think all good decisions, once the guardrails are set up, are made fast, right? You want to make decisions as fast as possible because that allows you to adjust fast. I think if if folks want to dig into this deeper, I think a a really good framework to look at are are OODA loops, right? And so observe, orient, decide, act, right? You want to make sure that the choice, the choice you make internally is politically safe, right? Because back to story, back to social contracts, back to history, people are irrational, but their irrationality very rarely comes from nowhere, right? Yeah. Something happened. And so whenever you make a change, especially one that can be as jarring as a pivot, it's got to be, the story has to be told in a way that is as safe as possible. So folks no, they're not going to get fired, right? <laughs> and then there's that third thing, right? Which is data informed, right? I'm very careful about my words here. I did not want to say data driven, right? Because yeah. data driven is I, I see a metric, I go after it. <laughs> North star, North star. North star, ah, yeah, yeah. Doesn't work for Australian product managers as it turns out. <laughs> very good. <laughs> you know, this is a... You know, it's, it's got to be data informed, right? Like the data that we're crafting here has to come from some sort of real place, right? It has to have some tie to the incentives that folks are looking to go after. And so, you know, if you combine those three things, you're starting to make better choices and then you're building out. That's the core of, of really good change. And now you're starting to think about the three pillars of a survival metric. So what's an example of a real world survival metric that you've used or advised someone else to use based on maybe some of the consulting that you've done? just so that my listeners can maybe start to feel a little bit inspired about the sort of things that they might track to help to sell in that story? I think this piece of, of this example kind of includes all those things, right? Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I had worked with a team prior is they were trying to understand or they were trying to avoid this massive growth in their AWS bill. <laughs> Good luck. Right, because they were kind of building haphazardly you can create controls, but like if you're not paying, as you well know, if you're not paying attention to that, yep. you know, it can balloon. And next thing you know, it's like, where did this $50,000 go? Like, you know, like where did this $100,000 go? Where did this million dollars go? Your operating expenses can, can get crazy, right? If, if, especially if you don't have folks paying attention to it. And so they were talking about how to maintain that level of consciousness around their spend, right? And so 
after talking to the ops person, right, that director of ops job is tied to that. Yeah. Their incentive is to make sure that Bill doesn't go past X number because more than the engineer, more than the product person, more than the designer, more than anyone else, that number is the number that their job is based on. And so when thinking about the next product, I told the product manager there, right? Like, hey, this is a, we have this company-wide initiative around making sure we contain cost. Go talk to that director of operations and go find out what are they thinking? Like, our bill's going to jump, but what's the bill that's going to make them start to get squeamish? And so we go back to those questions, right? How much are we willing to invest? How much are we willing? How much pain are we willing to take, right? And what markers, I'll throw another one in, right? Like, what markers do you need to see to say, hey, it's worth more pain, right? So, like, you know, if we get X, right, let's add some more money, let's add some more engineers, let's add some more X, right? And so, after doing this investigation and kind of talking around, they figured out, hey, if the AWS bill is projected to jump more than 10% due to a release, we'll need to stop everything and discuss ways to lower the projected bill, right? Not stop, but we need to start. This is where we get cost control. We start thinking about cost control, right? And so when you present that metric, you do your kickoff and you present this metric and the director of operations sees it. Guess who trusts you more, right? Set director of ops because they see, hey, you actually care about what this project is going to do for me and my job and my team. And so guess who's not only happy, but guess who's more likely to help you as you're going through this process, right? (laughs) Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So it's about finding metrics that represent what matters to the rest of the business and then using those to justify decisions around either scaling up, scaling down, or as you say, pivoting or turning off. Yeah. Or something like that. And I I think there's one more point to really jump into that too, right? Uh, Another piece of decision-making, especially when it comes to sunk cost bias, is people taking a look at something and saying, oh, we always thought it was that, right? Like, we, <laughs> I mean, uh, 10%, 15%, you know, as long as it's 20%, right? I think it's 20, 25, 30, right? It's, this feature is important, right? You start telling yourself that story and then you fall into the same habits. And so when it comes to survival metrics, Something that's really important is to write these things down and put them everywhere, right? These have to be introduced at the kickoff. These have to be introduced at every sprint planning. These have to be introduced whenever you're doing demos, right? You're telling a story here with these metrics and hopefully along with these metrics, right? An actual story, right? Like you're not just going metric. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, otherwise you're just being data-driven again, right? There we go. Data-driven, right? 10%, 10%, right? No, we're telling a story about what this product is and how how it's going to make us better. And so it's important to keep this top of mind, right? Jason, we were talking before we started about how, you know, if you say something once, it didn't happen. Yeah, exactly. If you say it twice or three times or four times, it probably didn't happen, right? You, it's, there's a rule of seven that exists, right? You got to say yeah. something seven times. So if you're listening to a like podcast commercial, right, you'll hear the brand of the company. Yes. Hint, hint. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you'll hear the uh, company mention you know the name seven times, right? So you can remember. Yeah. Go to Wealthfront, for example, right? And so. For PMs that are thinking about picking up this framework, 
right? It's important that you show it off. You keep it in front of people so that when they go, you know, maybe 15, no, we agreed 10%. As a matter of fact, we pre-agreed yeah. that we're going to have this conversation to pivot. Let's stick ourselves to that. Now, if someone goes, they don't agree with that, and you have a bigger problem on your hands, but at least you have identified, yeah. right? You know, these are our lines. Yeah, well, let's all hope we can keep aligned for just one more sprint. <laughs> just one more just sprint. Just one more sprint. Take it one at a time. And where can people catch up with you after this if they want to have more of a chat about survival metrics or about any of the work that you're doing, any of the stuff they've heard here, or find out a little bit more? There'll be a bunch of links in the show notes. Absolutely. Find me. If you want to hear me rant about sometimes about product and everything else about life, go follow me on Twitter at the Honorable AT. I scream a lot, and then I make jokes, and then we have some conversations. <laughs> Other than that, you can find me at theadamthomas.com. And then, of course, there's this wonderful, wonderful column that I have at Built In where this is hosted. So, builtin.com, and just go ahead and type in the old name. Well, as you say, that'll all be in the show notes. So, hopefully, you'll get some. Beatlemania style fans running towards you after this goes out <laughs> well that's been a fantastic chat so obviously really appreciate you taking the time and sharing some of your thoughts hopefully we can stay in touch but as for now thanks for taking the time Jason this was amazing thank you for inviting me as always thanks for listening I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful if you did again I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com check out some of my other fantastic guests sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favorite podcast app and make sure you share it with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again i'll be back soon with another inspiring guest but as for now thanks and good night <laughs>